Good afternoon. Oh, the microphone is on. I'm Julie Rovner. I'm a senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I am very happy to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to Obamacare after Obama with U.S. Representatives Michael Burgess and Jean Green. If that's not the panel you were planning to attend, you're in the wrong room, but you are welcome to stay. Please do. I am required to tell you that the panel is supported by the Legacy, by Legacy Community Health, but while sponsors and donors underwrite this event, they play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. I get to ask questions, then you will at the end. Here's how we're gonna spend the next hour. I'm going to introduce our panelists briefly. You have their bios. Then the three of us will chat for 35 or 40 minutes. Then I will turn it over to you for your questions. There are microphones, one on each side of the room. Before we start, a little bit of housekeeping. Please turn your phones to stun. And please feel free to tweet. If you do, you can use the hashtag TTF. Got it? Good. Let's go. We are fortunate to have with us two senior members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee and its very powerful health subcommittee. You may never have heard of the committee, but you know all the programs and agencies it oversees. They include Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, and the entire U.S. Public Health Service. And it was one of the committees that helped draft the Affordable Care Act, now better known as Obamacare. To my immediate left is Michael Burgess. <laughs> He's a Republican member of the panel. He's in his seventh term in the House, and he represents the northeastern part of the state. Before coming to Congress, he practiced medicine as an obstetrician gynecologist and one of the early members of the House Physicians Caucus, now the House Health Caucus. To his left is Gene Green, and literally and figuratively, the senior Democrat on the Health Subcommittee. He's from Houston and was first elected in 1992. Before coming to Congress, he served in the Texas State Legislature and practiced law. I want to start out at the most 30,000-foot level I can get, maybe even further, by asking both of you, before we even talk about the Affordable Care Act, what do you think the appropriate role of the federal government should be in health care? Dr. Burgess? Well, that is an interesting question. And of course, I represent a very conservative part of the state, just a little north of Fort Worth, on up into Denton County. And it's actually a question I get a lot, that healthcare is not written in the Constitution. Uh, the founding fathers, Benjamin Rush, was a physician, most known for blistering, bleeding, <clears throat> and burning patients, because those were the tools of the trade at the time. So perhaps we're fortunate that he didn't write healthcare into the Constitution, because if we'd never advanced technologically beyond that point, we'd all be the, the worse for it. What I do see as my role, to the extent that there are things that the federal government is doing in healthcare, I was just a small child. I mean, a really small child, probably a tiny baby. Maybe I wasn't even born when Medicare was started 50 years ago. Um, it's different today than it was when Lyndon Johnson signed it into law. But it is my obligation. People are paying into it. People are depending upon it. It's my obligation to make certain that it, that it works, that patients are taken care of. They're taken care of in the most efficient manner to be sensitive to the taxpayer's needs. And I also do pay attention to the physicians who are required to give that care or make themselves available to give that care. Other federal programs, I mean, I approach with the same, the same philosophic approach. Maybe I wouldn't have done it that way if I'd been there at the time. Maybe I would or would not have been for it. But now that it's here, now that it's there, shouldn't it work? And the answer that I always come to in that, when I ask myself that question is, of course it should work. 
It should work on behalf of the taxpayer who's giving up the dollars to make it, to pay for it, and certainly the patients who depend upon it need it to work. Same is true in Medicaid, which is a shared federal and state responsibility. Certainly the agencies that we oversee, and maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit more as, as to, the, to the role of the committee with overseeing the agencies, but um, my obligation to see the National Institute of Health does what it's supposed to do. My obligation to see that the Food and Drug Administration does what it's supposed to do, that the drug supply in this country is safe and effective. Um, I reserve a small portion of my day to be mad at the FDA, and I'm usually not disappointed <laughs> and, and can use that time, but same with the CDC. They should do what they are supposed to do, as long as we're paying for them. Whether they should be there under the Constitution or not is a question that my mind was settled some time ago. It is my obligation to make certain that they function as intended and that the patient and the taxpayer are both equally attended to. So just to clarify, there are Republicans who would like to roll back <clears throat> the entire or almost the entire federal role in health care. I take it you're not one of them. Well, I think to the extent, <clears throat> and Medicaid's a good example of that, um, <clears throat> do I want to see an expanded federal role in Medicaid or would I rather see a, an expanded state role in Medicaid? And I do think there are unique features to each state that makes the state a better a, a, a better purveyor of that care at the state level. I mean, we'll probably get into this uh, in some detail in the Q&A part. One of the things we lost with the passage of the Affordable Care Act were the state risk pools. State risk pools, you know, when I was practicing medicine, I can't tell you that I absolutely ever took care of anyone who was covered in a state risk pool. I'm pretty sure I never got a reimbursement check from a state risk pool. But as I started doing this, and as we started talking about what was happening in healthcare, I had people come up to me and say, whatever, whatever you do, don't take away the risk pool in Texas because without that, I would not have anything. Now, the risk pools in Texas were chronically underfunded. Perhaps if we wanted to do something at a federal level, the appropriate thing to do was to allow more fiscal flexibility for states, perhaps a, a larger federal share to keep those state risk pools up and running. It'd be very difficult to go back and recreate them now, but it, <clears throat> I think it was a mistake to allow those to go away. Congressman Green. Um, obviously, we have different views. I'm a Democrat. You know, the Medicare Social Security is not in the Constitution either, um, but that's part of making our country a better country. Uh, I approach health care as it, during World War II when we devastated Germany, Italy, Europe, Western Europe, uh, those countries all came out after World War II and created some type of national health care for everyone. Our country, though, because of World War II, we used it as an employer-based incentive because with price controls, they couldn't provide additional money for employees in the factory, so they gave them health care, <coughs> gave them pensions. And uh, so that's how, so the Affordable Care Act, we try and build on that employer-based uh, coverage. Now, is the Affordable Care perfect? Of course not. I've served 20 years in the state legislature and now 20-something in Congress. If you look for perfection, don't come to the legislative body <laughs> because we do things by compromise. To, and I think our House bill was much better than what we ended up adopting because the Senate bill. And if you all remember back in... Uh, 2009, uh, Senator Kennedy from Massachusetts passed away. He was replaced by a Republican. The, uh, so the Democrats in the Senate lost their 60 votes. So they sent us a bill that was substantially flawed, but it was still a step down the road. 
Uh, I love football. I'd rather move the ball down the, uh, down the field. I'd love to score a touchdown, but if we move it down the field. So that's what the Affordable Care Act. I'd like to go back and fix it. Uh, some of the things that we've seen now in the last six years, three years since it's been in effect, um, I'm a big supporter of it. And part of it's the nature of the district I come from. In our district, before the Affordable Care Act, we were one of the highest in the country of people who went to work every day and their employer did not provide health care. And so when they got an emergency, it ended up in our Harris County Hospital District, now called Harris Health Systems, or in our for-profit hospitals. And those for-profit ones are our nonprofit. They have to have some reimbursement for it. Uncompensated care, I think, probably uh, comes up with about 15% of the, uh, the amount that they pay. So I believe the federal government has a main role in it. And I would like to, in some Congress, after President Obama leaves in January, to say, let's fix it. And one of my biggest goals is to make sure, because states like Texas did not expand Medicaid. Again, I represent a very urban district. I have 50,000 of my constituents who would get Medicaid today if the legislature would accept what we would do in Congress uh, for the first three years. It'd be 100% paid for by the federal government. After that, it would be 90% paid for. And I even introduced legislation in this Congress to make that in statute. Uh, Again, I served in the legislature. Our typical reimbursement for Medicaid in Texas is two-thirds Fed, one-third uh, state. So 90% is much better than even 60%, but we would cover a lot more folks. They would show up at our hospitals with some type of health care coverage, even if Medicaid is better than nothing. You've kind of anticipated my next question, which is I'm going to ask each of you to name one thing that the Affordable Care Act has been successful at doing and one thing that really, really needs to be fixed. So, Dr. Burgess? I'm, I'm racking my brain for that successful knew, part. So let, let me let Gene go first on that one. <laughs> well, I think the Affordable Care Act did a lot of things. Again, my experience in the legislature in Texas, we didn't ever regulate health care premiums. Uh, we regulated policies. Uh, but one of the things I fought for in the legislature and wanted to do was where we required insurance companies to pay 80% of that premium back into health care. Some states had that. Texas, we never did. So now an employer or anyone else knows 80% of that's going to go back into the health care system instead of 60 or 50% or whatever it was before. Uh, obviously, we helped Medicare. Uh, the uh, eliminating the uh, co-pays for annual exams, for closing the donut hole for Medicare. There are a bunch of things that are really good in there, but there are things that I would like to change in the Affordable Care Act. And again, I'd like to work across. And let me say, Congressman Burgess and I have worked together on health care since we've both been on the committee for a number of years. Now, granted, we will get up and fight with each other, but we also work on issues together. And I'd like to sit down with my Republican majority and say, okay, I didn't vote for the iPad. It wasn't in the House bill. I don't like the Cadillac tax. Let's see what we can do to fix the Affordable Care Act so it can, it can continue to grow and give people an option where they can have health care when they get ill. No, I don't know how the Independent Payment Advisory Board passed it because I didn't vote for it. If you didn't vote for it, who the hell voted for it? You did vote for it. You voted for it when the dog came back from the Senate and, and you brought it up in a, in a day's time. And it, it was a dog that was barking too. <laughs> so, um, again, I'm racking my brain to look, at the, to, to look for the positive aspects. Gene mentions the medical loss ratio. And, you know, that has been one of the things that has been now it's been kind of forgotten. It was talked about a lot when the Affordable Care Act first passed and 
was first first came into being. I guess what I don't understand is that if that 80% medical loss ratio, those dollars have to be returned for healthcare, I mean, our system in Texas ought to be a wash in cash because my premiums jumped a big time between 2012 and, and 2013 when the Affordable Care Act started. So I, I, if that 80% of even more dollars are coming back into the system, where, 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 where did it go? I think the, you know, the, one of the painful things for me about the Affordable Care Act, look, I'm a big believer in a health savings account type product for people who are in their primary working years. I think it does make sense for everyone, but for people who are just starting out, people who are midpoints of their careers, uh, health savings accounts became available about 20 years ago. 20 years ago in August, in fact, the kennedy Castlebaum bill was signed into law that allowed the first demonstration project that allowed health savings accounts to occur. I got one that year. I was frightened that I wouldn't be able to get one because you only allowed 700,000 in the country. And I, I feared that it, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't show up in time, but it turns out I needn't have worried. There were plenty, plenty to go around. But health savings accounts over time have gradually improved. And one of the things that it teaches you is that it's, it's okay to have a high deductible. So Obamacare has high deductibles. Maybe I ought to think that's a good thing. And here's, See, you found something. here's one of the, but here's the disconnect. With the health savings account, I was able to buy a policy that was perhaps less generous. It had a higher deductible, so the cost was less. And then if I'm disciplined enough to put those dollars into a tax-deferred health savings account, then I can be in control of my health care dollars, which as uh, someone who's spent a lot of time in health care, that, that really appealed to me. That was a way to sort of counterbalance the HMOs that were taking over so much of our market 20 years ago. So the Affordable Care Act does have high deductibles, the bronze and silver level deductibles. I actually had a, an unsubsidized bronze plan in the PPO in Texas after the Affordable Care Act passed. The deductible was $6,000 a month. Now, I'm used to high deductibles, but I had never seen one that was that high. Uh, the difficulty that I encountered was that the amount of money I could put into a health savings account was capped at $3,400. So there's a you know, fundamental disconnect. And I, you talk about fixing things in the Affordable Care Act. One of the things I tried to fix was, was that discrepancy. I have a bill out there, H.R. 1196. You're welcome to jump on. There's still time to get it passed this year if we're, if we're united in, in our approach to it. But it would create the, the amount of money you'd be able to place into a, a high deductible uh, or into a health savings account would be equal to the deductible of the bronze or silver plan. And every plan that was sold on the bronze or silver market would, by definition, be HSA compatible. Right now, it's actually a little difficult to, to find a, a product that is HSA compatible that is with the, uh, the plans that are available. Let's make it easy. Let's just make them all HSA compatible. Well, I agree with the health savings account, but in a district like I have, that's just not possible. If you have a family with three or four children, only one uh, uh, family member working, you know, that just doesn't work. And so that's why we need to have, and they may make too much money for Medicaid. Of course, in Texas, Medicaid has, is one of the, uh, the, the most stingy <laughs> Medicaid programs, I think, in the country. But, uh, so that doesn't work. But I do, I do think uh, HSAs have a place, but it's not the end-all, the be-all. And it's better for middle-income and higher-income folks to do it. Uh, by the way, 
uh, Mike and I both, uh, members of Congress, are prohibited from having uh, imp the federal employer's health insurance. So he buys his in Texas. Uh, I buy mine off of an exchange in Washington, D.C., and my premiums are substantial because uh, uh, we have to have physicians in Texas and physicians in D.C. who uh, we have to have access to. So. No, uh, believe me, it's outrageous. Of course, we can do a whole panel on that. Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I don't like to pay the premiums, but I am over 65 and I don't take Medicare, so uh, I have to admit uh, we pay a good premium. <laughs> so I would be remiss if I didn't actually pose the question that is the question of the panel, which is what happens to Obamacare after Obama? And obviously, it depends who's elected. So I want each of you to speculate, if you can, on what you think is most likely to happen if Hillary Clinton is elected and what's most likely to happen if Donald Trump is elected. Well, you're correct. What happens next is entirely November dependent. And I guess for me, for someone who's not really that enthralled with the Affordable Care Act, the good news is it's going to change. The bad news is it's going to change because it's got to change. It's got to change because the fractures that are occurring, these aren't just cosmetic hairline fractures in the foundation. These are deep structural uh, fractures in the foundation. Something bad is fixing to happen with the availability of insurance. Something bad is fixing to happen with the number of insurers who will participate in our state. So these things are going to have to be, they're going to have to be dealt with regardless of who is president. Now, if I ran the zoo, I would <laughs> get rid of the individual mandate first thing. I mean, when I took my hand off the Bible on Inauguration Day, I would, as an executive order, just like President Obama does, see, I'm going to be like him, say, I'm going to issue an executive order. I didn't think you all liked those things. Well, this is one that I might like, because I do it. <laughs> and I'd get rid of the individual mandate. And, and why would I get rid of the individual mandate? Well, for one thing, it's not working. Uh, here's one of the, when I say structural flaws, the Affordable Care Act, you have these, uh, uh, you have the problem with these ever- increasing losses by the insurance companies because people are coming in when they get sick. Perfectly normal human reaction to do that, but at the same time, it plays havoc with the stability of the, uh, of, of, of the population economics if you're trying to run an insurance company. But if you get rid of the individual mandate, let insurance companies sell me something that I might want to buy. Make them compete for my business. Uh, let them develop a longitudinal relationship with me as a patient, which I think would result in them selling better products, and again, products that actually took care of people, as opposed to you're going to buy it because you've got to buy it. That's all you can get. And uh, as a consequence, we see very, very few choices in the, uh, in the, current, uh, uh, in the current exchange markets. Look. We always forget about this, but in this country, you have three, I'm going to oversimplify, but you've got three insurance markets outside of the, the, the public markets, the Medicare and Medicaid and SCHIP. The individual market, I buy my insurance in the individual market, uh, can be expensive. There can be a lot of restrictions upon it. There's the small group market. People in the small group market are also feeling the pain of increasing prices and the difficulty with getting people to cover them. And then, of course, you have the large group market, which is, as Gene talked about, this was the, uh, the compromise that occurred at the Second World War when wage and price controls, hey, we can't, we can't pay you any more money, but the Supreme Court said these benefits, retirement benefits, health benefits, can, can accrue to the, uh, to the employee without violating the wage and price controls, so the stage was set for that. Arguably, penicillin and cortisone, which became readily available at the same time, had also a lot to do with how the health system developed. But nevertheless, 
the employer-based market is still, with all of the stresses and strains on it, is 65 to 75% of the insurance market in this country, and will likely remain that way unless something drastic happens. But even in the large group market, even in the large group market, they still, there are still problems with premiums that are going up. I mean, I talked about the high deductible, and Gene said, well, it doesn't work for most people in his district. The fact of the matter is that people, say, who work for, well, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but just imagine a large communications company that's known only by its initials. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a large group market, right? And they've seen their premiums up and up and up, even with the imposition of the Affordable Care Act, perhaps even a little faster after the employer... Care, uh, after the uh, Affordable Care Act kicked in. And as the, the other thing that's just fixing to face them right around the corner is what's called the Cadillac tax. Now, it was delayed a little bit in a bill that passed last December, but the Cadillac tax is going to have a profound effect on... You might explain what the Cadillac tax is, or I can. <laughs> the, the Cadillac tax was designed... If they, the people feel that one of the problems with health care being so expensive is people are getting too much. They're getting too much of coverage. So uh, the policy, the, the, the benchmark is set at a, uh, I believe it's $10,000 a year for an individual. 10, five, yeah. So any, any coverage over and above that is going to be taxed at, what, 40%? 40%. It's a 40% it's it's a a surtax on insurance that's above a certain level, both for individuals. And it's as obviously as premiums go up, the number of people who will get caught in that Will, will go up, and thus insurers are, uh, employers are already cutting back on their coverage to avoid hitting the cap. To stay under the cap. And so it was originally intended, well, we just get the rich guys with that, but it turns out, again, it covers, uh, it also covers a significant number of employees who are covered by an employer-sponsored plan. That was delayed to 2018, but at the same time, it's, uh, even now you have employers and insurance companies who are making adjustments because that is right around the corner. Congress did delay it uh, last year. Um, I don't know that we can be counted on to delay it again. Sometimes we're dependable, sometimes we're not. Well, I would not only want to delay it, I would want to eliminate it. Like I said, it you wasn't part of the it. House bill. I didn't vote for it. Well, they didn't let me amend the conference report or the Senate bill, but I would have. But, um, and it wouldn't have passed the House. We, we voted in our committee on the Cadillac tax and defeated it. Uh, we voted on the iPad in our committee, and it wasn't part of our package. Um, in, in theory, maybe the Cadillac tax would work, but the problem is, is it's not just going to the executives, the high income. It's actually going to people who actually, as part of their collective bargaining agreement, give up money in their paycheck so they can have better health care or better pensions. And, uh, and that's not what it was intended for. So we, there's other ways we can deal with that. But... Uh, but you know, I would, there are a lot of things we can do to fix. In fact, Mike and I, when you mentioned penicillin after World War II, uh, those of us who know Mike and I did work together on the, afford on the uh, uh, 21st Century Cures piece of legislation. The House passed it, gosh, 15 months ago, and the Senate's still sitting on it. But uh, because we need to look into the future, uh, the mandatory funding, the NIH, mandatory FDA reform, half a billion dollars to them. Uh, $8.75 billion the NIH over a five-year period to, to develop that new uh, antibiotic uh, that, so we can be resistant to some of the illnesses we see today, uh, whether it be Zika, Ebola, you name it. So uh, we do work together on things, but on the Affordable Care Act, my joke is I never get my Republicans to vote with me on the Affordable Care Act, but on everything else, we try to work together. And because the Affordable Care Act became a political issue, and rightfully so, I guess. I don't mind campaigning for it in my district. In fact, my joke was 
If a Republican voted for it in 2009, they would have been beating their primary. And I would hope I would be beating my primary if I didn't vote for the Affordable Care Act, because we have such a demand in our district. And again, uh, we have some of the highest in the country before that. Um, we still have problems. Again, no Medicaid expansion hurt my district. We have a lot of people who work and make a little more money than they can in Texas to get Medicaid, uh, but they don't make enough to get the subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. That would be one of the things we ought to fix. But the question is, will it be easier to fix under President Clinton? And oh, I don't think there'd be any doubt uh, that it'd be easier to work with uh, a President Clinton. And, you know, I'm actually supporting her. I supported her in 08. <laughs> so, uh, and health care was one of them. Uh, she tried to break this, and some of those remember, and, uh, and I was on at that time the Education and Labor Committee. Uh, we had three committees that have jurisdiction over health care. At that time, labor and education, education and labor, we had a majority of Democrats, we called it labor instead of workforce, but uh, energy and commerce and ways and means. Ways and means and energy and commerce couldn't get the bill out, but it came out of my education and labor committee in 1994. But, um, but again, you had the other, the other two committees to work on it. I'd love to sit down with uh, President Clinton and uh, do what we can do on the special on uh, fixing the Affordable Care Act and save money, but also make sure it's expanded to give more people access to it. And if there is a President Trump, I mean, do you think Republicans are going to? I mean, if there's a President well, Trump, come I'm on. I'm saying if there's a President there's Clinton, there's going to be a President Trump. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and what are the Republicans Hide prepared? I mean, we have no idea what he really wants to do on health care beyond repeal the Affordable okay, Care so Act. Okay, here's the good news. So, all right, the policy drawer may may look a little thin right now. But Speaker Ryan has tasked all of us on the Republican side, not just in health care, but in tax reform, foreign policy, uh, to put together working papers on, uh, on a governing Republican agenda. So health care has been part of that. It's most of the things that I've talked about my entire time, uh, the health savings accounts, tax credits, uh, uh, I would like to see us move back to a... Uh, um, a State a shared state responsibility with uh, with uh, uh, pre-existing conditions, but um, there'll be lots of opportunity. Look, even if it is Hillary Clinton, she can't just do things out of the White House. Well, wait a minute, <laughs> President Obama kind of has. But in theory, on our system, you're supposed to come to the legislative branch. We are supposed to hammer it out. Uh, and as ugly as that is, then come up with a product that the president either says. I can't sign that or I'm good to go, right? So that's, and, and Gene talks about the very narrow margins on the Affordable Care Act. I mean, here's the problem. Look, we've worked together on fixing a big problem in Medicare and we're repealing a formula that was so fatally flawed when it was initiated that it should have never been there. It took a long time. Which was, by the way, a bipartisan mm -hmm. formula <clears throat> when, it, when it was initiated. In 97. I wasn't there, but we got it done. And the Cures Act, we work together, we got it done. The important thing there is when you move a big major piece of legislation like that, yeah, it, Gene's right. There is no, no, nothing's perfect when it leaves the legislative branch and of course it goes over to the agency and they start creating the rules for it. Uh, that makes some people uncomfortable. Well, it's important to have people from both sides of the dais who are invested in it. You had no Republican vote for the Affordable Care Act. Why am I going to go out on a limb, anger my constituents, and try to fix your problems with the Independent Payment Advisory Board? You voted for it. You fix it. But on the other hand, the Medical Access and Chip Reauthorization Act that we both supported and we both worked on, 
yeah, there are some bumps in the road as the federal agency, as Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services begins to work on that. We'll approach that together. We'll, we'll work together regardless of who's in the top chair in the dais next year in the health subcommittee. We'll work together on that because we're both invested. We both, we both voted for it. We, we both championed it. Uh, we're both angry at the Senate for not taking up our cures package. They should. Um, clinical trials, why does it take 14 years and a billion and a half dollars to develop something new? A lot of people want to talk about drug prices. Yeah, I think we probably should. There have been some, some really bad examples. But on the other hand, you don't want to strip innovation. And again, the, the, the reforming the clinical trials process, which was a big piece of what was in the cures for the 21st century, reforming the interoperability of, of health data, these are big pieces that uh, this country is going to need from, to, to be able to stay in the vanguard in development of medical science. Well, we'll fight for that together because we're both invested in it. Uh, but you want me to go to bat for the Independent Payment Advisory Board? Shoot, it's on you, brother. You voted for it. But are you suggesting, I mean, Republicans are in control of both houses of Congress now. There's every likelihood that, that they will continue to be in control, at least of the House next year. I think if so. not of, of, of both the House and the Senate. I'm counting on it. Are you suggesting that Republicans are never going to come around to, to fixing the Affordable Care Act? No, no, no. I told you I've got a bill out there right now that would fix one of the problems that is inherent with the Affordable Care Act with the, with the high deductible policies that are created and demanded by the Affordable Care Act. I haven't gotten a lot of traction on that, but uh, I mean, I've got 20-so uh, Republican co-sponsors, no, no Democratic co-sponsors. I mean, it, this, uh, the ownership of the Affordable Care Act, because it was single-party ownership when the thing passed, uh, just makes it very, very difficult for things to be worked on in the future. Now, as I started this discussion, there are some big problems. Big problems. Um, the new open enrollment period starts November 1st, seven days before <laughs> Election Day. Who thought that was a good idea? Now, I don't think that in their, <laughs> I don't think in anyone's wisdom that they would delay that, though that has happened with this administration in the past. But look, people are going to be entirely cognizant of what their premium is in the, in the exchanges. After, uh, after November 1st, because they have to be public. Are enough insurers going to show up? You know, just talk about Texas for a minute. Are enough insurers going to show up so that every county has not just one, but two insurers so they can get the benefits of the competition that, that Gene talked about? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Right now, you hear rumblings and grumblings from people who say, well, either you, you let us set these prices uh, higher, or you let us merge, or you let you know, you've got to give up something else if we're going to show up in your marketplace. Now, to counter to that on a, on a uh, I don't want to put words in the uh, Democratic nominee's mouth, but their counter is, well, maybe it's time to reconsider a public option. Oy vey, that's the last thing I want to see. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's one of the, that's part of the equation for November and part of the equation that people need to bear in mind. You've kind of anticipated my next question was, which is, is there a way that the ACA has played out in Texas that you found particularly unexpected? Well, I think both of us, uh, 
look, every prediction I've made about the ACA has been wrong. Because I, <laughs> <Me said, too. laughs> I said it'll never pass the House, and it did. I said it'll never pass the Senate, and it did. I said, well, the Senate thing is never going to pass in the House, and it did. I said, well, the president never signed it, and he did. And then I said, well, you just watch out. The Supreme Court, man, they're going to pull the rug out from under everyone on this darn thing. And they didn't. So why do you even ask me my opinion <laughs> on this topic? I'm never, I'm never right. But when the Supreme Court took the case in 2012, um, while it looked like an unbridled victory for the administration, there was a little bit of a wrinkle that was imposed. Because of the way the law was drafted, uh, the Supreme Court looked at the Medicaid part of the Affordable Care Act and said, you cannot coerce the states to do this. Now, it could have been written in a different way. Perhaps if there had been a bipartisan group that had worked on it, it could have, it could have looked different. But it didn't. And as a consequence that, uh, you know, don't blame the fact that there's not unanimity of Medicaid expansion across the country. Don't blame that on a Republican majority in the House. We didn't write it that way. Somebody else did. The Supreme Court interpreted it that way. So the, really the Supreme Court in 2012 put down a mixed decision and, uh, and people have been having to sort of uh, deal with the consequences ever since. Well, and I agree. The Supreme Court did validate it, but they allowed that. And, um, and that's what was, you know, in a district like I have, substantial hurt on the Affordable Care Act. And that was the Senate language. But again, politics being that, we couldn't, if we changed the bill, went to conference committee, they couldn't get 60 votes in the Senate. And again, I would rather have a flawed plan than something where we were at and start all over again, because we've been trying to do this since 1960. Uh, John Dingell's father introduced a national health care plan before John Dingell was elected in 19. 55, I think. So we've been working on it for a long time. So we have, you know, a flawed plan. But again, if you expect something perfect, don't come to the Congress. So, but, uh, but that's something we could fix. And that would be one of the things we could fix on day one. If we could say, okay, let's fix that there. There are other things in there that we need to do. And I agree with Mike. Uh, the, uh, but let me talk a little bit about the private market compared to the uh, exchanges. When I was in the legislature, I helped manage a printing company, 13 employees. And we were a small group. We never got any of the big companies that bid for us. In insurance was always an issue because we didn't have enough employees to do synergies, 13 employees. We had a collective bargaining agreement, and we, we had to match whatever the union could do for our own plan, which we did. And, uh, and so it was hard. prices went up all the time, and they still go up. But uh, and there's always been uh, the other thing is on number of people serving the market, there are a number of states in this country that there's only one insurer in the, in the market, in the group market. So, and that's long before the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, we're not responsible for that, but believe me, I would love to amended the Senate bill because um, our language out of the House on Medicaid expansion, you took it all. <laughs> you didn't uh, cherry pick and say, oh, this expansion can do it. But the Senate... The Senate doesn't do, as I found out uh, my first term, that Senate doesn't do the specificity that we need on drafting legislation. And I'm still used to reading it and writing it myself sometimes, which well, really scares my staff. Let's <laughs> open it up to questions. A um, couple of things as you guys line up. Uh, first of all, please tell us who you are when you ask your question. Second of all, please ask a question. Don't make a speech because I can see lots more people are going to want to ask questions than we have time for. And third of all, I'm stealing this from a session I was just at next door. Please, let's keep it civil. So, go ahead. My name is Crystal Dietrich. Um, I currently work as an occupational therapist in Austin and the surrounding areas. 
My question is for uh, Jean Green. Um, one of the things that I've struggled with in serving my families is that they have a hard time attaining services for loved ones or reporting horrific crimes because they're afraid of being deported. So my question for you <coughs> is, um, Hillary Clinton is committed to passing um, common sense immigration reform policies the first 100 days. Uh, if the House stays in Republican control, are you comfortable and are you willing to step forward in a bi bipartisan manner and support common sense immigration reform? I would hope we could. You know, the Senate passed a bipartisan comprehensive immigration form in the last Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, it was never brought to the floor, and I think it would have passed because we would have had the huge numbers of Democrats. Maybe we lost two or three, and we would have picked up 30, 35 Republicans maybe. So we would have passed that Senate bill on a bipartisan basis, but it was never brought up by the leadership at that time. And I'm hoping, I'm a, I've been a con uh, supporter and co-sponsor of the Comprehensive Immigration Reform. Uh, we do citizenship workshops in our district, and that right now we're dealing with some of the problems with uh, the president's executive order. They're running out of their time on their DACA and for the uh, children who have grown up. So there's a lot of issues in there, but I'm, I'm a big supporter of comprehensive immigration reform. And I would hope we would do it, even if Republicans uh, keep control of the House, we could work it out together. Although Mike and I both, Mike, uh, and I hope he gets it, Republicans limit their uh, chairman to three terms. Uh, our chair we have now left Congress, but Mike uh, may be the next one. Mike told me he'd like to be the chair while I'm the ranking member. I would rather me be the chair and let Mike be my ranking <laughs> member. Good luck with that. <laughs> Anything you want to say on immigration? Uh, look, you know, the, I was just down in, uh, on the border earlier in, in, uh, in August. The problem with unaccompanied minors coming across the border is every bit as bad today as it, or this summer as it was two summers ago. There is an enormous problem with, uh, with security on our border, and my opinion, that has to be fixed first before you can have any further discussion. Over here. Um, T.R. Reed uh, wrote an outstanding book on healthcare. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's called The Healing of America. And I would recommend it to everybody, especially your cohorts in Congress. But uh, in it, he, he studied all of the, uh, well, many of the healthcare systems throughout the world, especially the successful ones. And the one thing he says is that you really have to go single pay. How do you feel about single payer coverage for United States? Is that something? I think it was in the first writing of the, yeah. of the Senate bill, you wasn't it? First and yeah, it creates great waves of nausea for me. <laughs> I, I know, well, why I, does the rest of the world think it's so great? Well, Gene, <clears throat> I, I like Gene's uh, discussion when he talked about the end of the Second World War. Yeah, the, the people who lost were the ones who set up these social engineering programs. Exactly, and they're, they were very effective. Where we built bombs, they worked on health care. So. And yet, you look at the number of Nobel Prizes that are awarded in medicine in the United States of America is far and away uh, the, the leader in medical innovation in the world. Uh, innovation, yes. But general health care, not so. The leader in innovation. Well, innovation comes when I'm so sick with cancer that you can save me. But what about all of the people we have that are walking around with diabetes and everything else? Rather than trying to keep 
Rather than having health care, we have medical care. And I think there's a big difference. Well, let me respond. You know, the politics is the art of the possible. We weren't going to change our system to a single payer. Medicare worked in 1965 because there was no market for people over 65. And, but we do have, in fact, even today, we have more people under the uh, free market system to get insurance through their employers and even through the individual market than we do through the exchanges or the state exchanges. So, uh, but I think it, we may end up with a, a, you know, a single payer, although there's no perfect system. Uh, United Kingdom has problems with their system. Of course, while we built bombs, you know, uh, we not only rebuilt Germany and Italy, and, uh, but we, you know, France and Great Britain continue their uh, government health care. You know, it's interesting. I saw just yesterday one of the great single payers in the world is Rwanda. Now, Rwanda to me is only the brutality that's going, but they have an effective system from what I understand. Of course, it's a very, it's, you know, not even as big as Houston, but, uh, but, you know, there are successes in every level that we can get. I just want to make sure access is my bottom line, whether it's a single payer, and like you said, with the person with diabetes. I have a district, that, and I visit them all the time. I probably have more DaVita clinics per capita than any other congressional district because diabetes, high blood pressure are rampant. And that's why we, uh, Houston-Harris County did not expand the FQHCs uh, of Great Society, LBJ created Travis County, when I first started on the committee, had 22 federally qualified health clinics. Harris County, I think, had 10. We've expanded it over the years because we need that access in the community, and we're still doing it. I'm working on two expansions. I know uh, Mike has worked on that in his, uh, in his district, too. So there are ways we can do it to treat those folks with access in their community. But the Wizards who are in charge of administrative pricing at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, <laughs> pay for dialysis. They don't pay for prevention. I mean, I fight with that all the time. The people, people who've received uh, a kidney transplant will receive immunosuppressive drugs for three years under the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the end-stage renal disease program. Uh, at the end of that three years, good luck to you. Uh, you're off the, you no longer have end-stage renal disease, you're off the program, so you're on your own. But it makes much more sense to continue the immunosuppressive, not reject the graft, and not end up back at DeVita, even in spite of the fact that they do a good job. Oh, they do a great job. It's just, and I, people complain to me. I said, well, before we had those clinics, people died. And I don't know if we want to make that decision in our country. And I would just point out that, A, Germany doesn't have a single-payer system, and B, it actually goes back to the 1800s. <laughs> it wasn't done after World War II. Next. Hi. Bismarck did that. <laughs> My name is Vanita Ray. I happen to work with Legacy Community Health. But I'm, um, my question is, I happen to be a woman living with HIV. And I don't understand. I, the Republicans don't support Affordable Care Act. But, but can you tell me why nothing else was done and that was what was passed? And then secondly, uh, before it passed and I had a small business, I had to use the high, the high, the risk pool for Texas. My premiums were crazy. I didn't get a lot of choices. I think at one point I was paying $800 a month. That didn't include, that was the premium, never mind copay, deductible, and all that. And because of the pre-existing condition, I couldn't get it with my small business. And so under this, under the Affordable Care Act, I'm, a, I'm, I'm able to get insurance and it doesn't cost me that much. So if all of that is wrong, why didn't something happen before the Affordable Care Act? 
Well, I think things things were happening, and you know, here's one of the great one of the great uh, uh, lost opportunities with the way the Affordable Care Act was done. I mean, why in the world wouldn't you involve a governor or two or three or four if you're going to reform health care in this country from soup to nuts? Um, why wouldn't you call on the people who, I mean, governors have a pretty big footprint with health care in their states. And this was one of the complaints that uh, I remember Governor Herbert of Utah. He said, look, I was trying to set up exchanges. The Affordable Care Act comes along and, and creates such a, a confusing environment. I, I kind of lost, I kind of lost the, the ability to do that. Um, leaving that in in a, for me, leaving it in a smaller jurisdiction, like a state jurisdiction, makes a lot of sense, because each state has unique, unique conditions that. Uh, Governor Romney, when he was governor, and came and talked to us about the changes he was doing in healthcare in Massachusetts. And I asked him a question. I said, well, that all sounds well and good. What do you do about the people that are in your state without the benefit of a social security number? And his answer was, well, why would anyone not have a social security number? Um, actually, we got a few folks like that here in Texas. <laughs> so if we tried to set up an exact replica of what Governor Romney did in Massachusetts, uh, it's it's going to be in 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 a tight spot from the start. A program that would be developed in Texas that perhaps you know look the problem with the risk pools of the state of Texas was yeah they're underfunded. If the federal government is going to do something, if we're going to spend a trillion and a half dollars, maybe a small amount of money should be made up earmarked for the states to help them with their risk pools. That seems like that would have been a much more sensible way to go about it. Now, in your individual case, I, I don't know if you have a premium that's subsidized with the advanced premium tax credit. The, uh, I know in my, my own situation, my premium was $700 a month with just, that's what it is because of uh, the, you're only able to discriminate against people because of age or smoking. I didn't smoke, but I was old. And so I ended up paying a, a fairly high premium on that basis. Uh, we ended up, um, it was a, it was a transfer payment from from one segment of the population to another. But if you're really going to do something like that, what? and this is what people asked me when I was doing those town halls in the summer of 2009, and they were, they were pretty widely attended. Uh, I had thousands of people show up at a given time. And the, what they were asking was, don't mess up what we have right now. But if you do something, could you at least help us with cost? Because we are concerned about that. Now, I'd just say, how did the Affordable Care Act do on both of those asks? And the answer is not very well. Might we have done better if we had involved states from the start? I think that's possible. Well, let me respond. One, thank you for working for Legacy. Uh, great community clinics. In fact, we're trying to work with them, expand one in our district. Uh, I was in the legislature when we did the risk pools. The problem is it was the state didn't put the money in and all you had was people as high risk and you can't have an insurance policy where all you have is, you know, high need and no and low premiums or even, you know, so it just doesn't work. So that's why in my case, you know, I talked to my local state legislators, but I didn't talk to the governor at that time, um, Governor Perry, because I also served with Rick and I knew where he was at. <laughs> and uh, again, the politics got in the way of it because uh, Mike and I, Joe Barton, even my, uh, Tim Murphy from Pennsylvania, we worked on in amendments to the Affordable Care Act. In the House, in our committee, they passed by voice vote. But, you know, again, the big picture, 
because of the mandate. It was is not popular. Nobody likes to be told what you, you need to do. But you know, in Texas, for me to drive, I have to have at least liability insurance. So you know, there's a lot of mandates that we have to do. So you know, and one of them I think is the mandate that you have to have insurance if you can afford it. If you can't, then we're going to give you either an, another program at subsidy to do it. So it's the best we could get. But uh, but anyway, like I said. Um, it needs to be improved. By the way, my town hall meetings in 09 were like zoos. Um, <laughs> my, my town halls, typically I have 30 people and it's boring. But uh, when I have normally 30 people and I have 400 people show up, uh, although I have to admit in Baytown, Texas, the, one of the obstetricians there uh, was well thought of. And uh, when he stood up and said, we need to have health reform, and he had delivered most of the people in that room, they still booed him. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, politics gets in the way sometimes of really legislating. Over here. Hi, my name is Blair Cushing. Um, I'm currently a family medicine resident, um, about halfway through my training. Right. And um, looking into the future and kind of the, the practice environment that I desire and how I want to work, I'm really intrigued by direct primary care practice models for purposes of being able to reduce overhead, having better relationships with your patients, um, producing better quality without the interference from payers. Um, but then when I think about health reform and kind of um, even notions of like pushing for single payer or something like that, then that kind of makes um, direct primary care models less accessible. But for a while now, I've been thinking about how within my community where my training program is, we might be able to try and expand direct primary care access to low income, um, including some of those residual uninsured or undocumented residents um, for whom it would actually probably be a much more cost effective model versus mm -hmm. just paying for emergency room based care. Um, so I'm wondering from your perspective, um, knowing that direct primary care relationship in conjunction with a um, catastrophic care plan actually does qualify meeting the individual mandate, what do you see as possibilities um, you know, through congressional fixes that we could possibly be able to expand these types of models to some of our lower income folks or residual uninsured? Well, I'm a believer in that type of model. And uh, thank you for taking on the training for becoming a physician. We've made the, the landscape so difficult. I mean, I would do it again in a heartbeat because you're gonna have tools at your disposal that no generation of doctors has ever known to be able to alleviate human suffering. But man, we've made the policy landscape kind of, kind of tough. The good news from the direct primary care model landscape actually will come on the Medicare side, I believe. With the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Program that was passed, a year and a half ago, as that now is working its way through the agency, one of the things that I am particularly attentive to is will models of care, like a direct primary care model, will that be uh, allowed and encouraged by the, again, the administrative pricing wizards at CMS? And I think it should be. One of the difficulties that we have right now, <clears throat> part of the Affordable Care Act, is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation that was created. This, uh, uh, Don Berwick called it the crown jewel of, of the Affordable Care Act. The crown jewel of Obamacare is the is a center where you can be visited with a national uh, demonstration project without going through any kind of rulemaking. That is, the agency just decides, this is how we're doing it like joint replacement. They've recently done some things in that space where they only affected three or four major markets, but it was, it was a big change in how, how they compensate for joint replacements and as a consequence um, may make it less accessible to patients in those areas. When the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization passed, 
in order to kind of get around the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, the, it created in law was another group called the uh, Advanced, the, the Physicians Technical Advisory Committee. And the PTAC will be able to evaluate, your group puts together data on a direct primary care model. We're delivering better care, better patient success, better outcomes. And after all, as we talk about, we don't want to pay for value, uh, volume, we want to pay for value. So you've got better outcomes. The PTAC can evaluate that, and, uh, and then that becomes an approved payment model that other people can, can begin to, uh, to copy or use that as a template. So that is you know, the whole idea that now in this Medicaid or Medicare reform that's going on in the agency right now. Will that hold together? Will that stay? Uh, will, will that vision? See, I always felt that doctors made a big mistake when we let the agency be the determiner of quality. I mean, we're the ones. We, we know what quality is, right? You know the good doctors are the bad doctors, right? So we should be the determinants of quality, not the agency. And I really am, uh, with, with the macro, I really did try to move the needle back in the direction of, of physician autonomy. I, again, I don't know if I'll be successful. You know, there is uh, the administration, everyone who's over there that I'm talking to right now is going to be different next year, uh, regardless of who wins in November. And I don't know if they'll be easier or harder to work with. But of any policy implementation, health policy implementation that I've been involved with since I've come to Congress, this has been the one time where the agency actually seems to care about what the committee members think. So that's been a, that's been a positive one. Uh, not so with the Affordable Care Act, not so with the Medicare Modernization Act, not so with the Deficit Reduction Act, all the other major pieces of health policy that, I, that I've seen since I've been there. This, this, one, this one has been a little bit different. I think well, we have to talk, oh, go ahead. Let me uh, also congratulate you on, on becoming a physician. I watched our daughter go to this university and then go to UTMB, and she told me she wanted to be an infectious disease doctor, and I said, uh, I don't want you treating those kind of things. <laughs> but, uh, but that was her vocation or avocation. And, uh, and she's done very well, though, for a TSIP. She's actually at the University of Nebraska. And, uh, you do have to see sick people when you're practicing medicine. <laughs> I, I know. I One more to, question as that's long what as it's she does. really quick. I'll try to make it quick. First of all, my name is Carl Jones. I'm a uh, UT grad of 1976. Uh, I live in West Austin. I'm a retired uh, financial advisor and consultant for a Wall Street firm. Uh, the question I have uh, evolves around uh, the Medicaid expansion. Three quick statistics from the Kaiser Foundation. Number one, there's roughly 20 million people that have been picked up with coverage from the ACA since 2014. Most of those folks, low income, the lower middle income people. And number two, <clears throat> there is about three million people that have uh, lost coverage due to 19 states failing to expand Medicaid. And the question is, uh, how much more affordable, how much more cost effective, and how much uh, better uh, carrier utilization rate we would have if Medicaid was expanded in all 50 states? Oh, I think the return in your on- opinion. My opinion, the return on investment on that would not be not be as, as good as you might anticipate. There, is, there are some good studies that, that show a rate of return of 20 cents to 40 cents on every dollar invested in Medicaid. Look, if you are going to reform the health system in this country from top to bottom, 
Is the best you can do expansion of Medicaid a program that requires, what, 2,900 waivers to work on an average day? Uh, wouldn't there perhaps be other ways to go about this? A premium support model? Now, Arkansas, in their expansion, is trying a premium support model. It took them a considerable effort to get CMS to approve that. Indiana, with their Healthy Indiana program, is, has approved a, a health savings account, a consumer-directed health care plan like uh, in their Medicaid system, like the health savings account. Uh, it remains to be seen whether that's going to be an improvement, though everything else they've done in their Healthy Indiana plan has delivered more care at lower cost. So again, when I talk about state flexibility, there, there, there are gains to be made. One of the things that's going on right now, and we've got, uh, at least on the Republican side of the committee, a Medicaid task force. We know that something is going to have to happen in Medicaid because of the cost you know, Gene's comment is about just expanding Medicaid. It wouldn't be great. Everyone gets, the, everyone gets the same expansion dollars. The problem is that there really are not the dollars in the federal treasury to pay for that. So something is going to have to give somewhere. Wouldn't it be better if we're spending so much money on Medicaid anyway to spend it more wisely and get a better rate of return than 20 to 40 cents on every dollar that's invested? I think we can do better. And I think, again, I'm, I'm optimistic that state plans would have a, a, a better opportunity to do that. One of the... Well. They don't do it because they don't have the flexibility. And you talk to your folks in your state legislature here, they, yeah, give us the flexibility of a block grant. Uh, Governor Perry said that over and over again. You let me, you give me the money, I'll take care of more people and get them better care than what you're paying for right now. I actually believe he's correct on that. I don't think he's correct in having served 20 years in the legislature. I've watched us <laughs> in, in Texas do that. Um, we've We've never funded Medicaid. There were programs in, when I was a state senator in the late 80s, I could say these are 80% federal funding instead of the typical two-thirds, one-third. And we didn't even have, I couldn't get the money in the Senate just to take these. And these were prevention programs to make people healthier. Uh, we didn't do it. That's not how the legislature works. Um, you know, and that takes away from the national health care issue. You know, what we do, and my job as a, uh, as a member of Congress is not to take your taxes and send it to the legislature to spend. Because that's, I, don't, I can't control that, but I can control what I vote for on the House floor. So if Texas wanted to do it, they could do it. And, uh, and granted, I'm medicated and perfect, and I'd like to work with, uh, on a bipartisan basis to reform it. But I also know, and we have either potential physicians, hospitals, uh, there's not a hospital in my area, whether they're for-profit, non-profit, or a public hospital, that wouldn't say when that patient walks in the door, they'd rather them have Medicaid than nothing at all. And uh, because they're already serving those undocumented in our clinics. FQHCs do it. Our Harris County Health Systems clinics. So it would be better for them to have Medicaid than nothing at all. That's going to have to be the last word, but I think we've, you've now answered the question of the panel, which is that even after President Obama leaves office, the debate about Obamacare is going to continue. Thank you both very much. Thank you.